Good morning, beloved. If you have your copy of scripture, will you turn with me to Malachi chapter one? Malachi chapter one, this is the last book of the Old Testament. So you'll find it just before Matthew. Malachi chapter one, we're gonna pick up where we left off last week in verse six. Um, And as we do that, I wanna invite you into just a brief moment of prayer. Um, Will you take a moment to pray um, that that God would speak in and through me um, and for the rest of your pastors as today's text um, hits us pretty hard? And so would you spend just a moment asking God to work in our lives? And then would you ask God to work in your life? That he would open your ears and your heart to hear from him this morning and be changed. And lastly, very simply, just say, come Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, uh, when I was in my young 20s, I... I got married to my lovely wife, Courtney, and for our honeymoon, I I had my undergraduate in social sciences, and so I was a nerd, and we went to Washington, D.C., because, you know, I wanted to see all the history stuff, and um, it was a wonderful time, still one of our favorite cities in the world, Um, but in Washington, D.C., mind you, I am in my lower 20s, I went to UCF, and I was born and raised across central Florida, and so I am a true Floridian, native here, I know we're rare, Um, anybody else? Yeah, all right. It's a good club. It's a good club to be part of. Um, but uh, we don't do well with cold weather and things like that. Um, but we, we went there, and because it's Florida, uh, my normal attire, like every day of my life basically, was flip-flops, board shorts, and a t-shirt. And so we get off the plane in D.C., and I quickly realize I'm really out of place here. And that's all I packed for this trip, you know? Um, so everywhere we went, I just felt so underdressed. Like you have all these young professionals wearing really nice clothes and darker colors and I'm wearing bright beachy looking things and it's just like I was always just felt like everyone's looking at me this and I, as an introvert. I hated that. Um, but it was really bad but the, probably the worst part of that experience was we went over to Arlington National Cemetery and so we make the journey over right next door and um, we're walking through and we're finding the, the grave markers of famous people who have done such heroic things and we get to the tomb of the unknown soldier. And if you've never been there, like, at least look it up. And it's just, I mean, you have this, this place that's to commemorate some soldiers that we don't know exactly who it is. But out of reverence and honor for their sacrifice, um, there is a constant guard there. And to be in this guard is a huge deal. Um, and, but it's just, it's just amazing the way that they stay there and protect this tomb. And they're legitimately protecting it. Like if you cross the line, you can watch videos of this. Like if you go past where you're supposed to be observing or you're too loud or something, they will absolutely point that rifle at you and threaten you. Like it's amazing to be in that moment and to to feel the reverence, just the atmosphere of real deep respect. And here I am with flip-flops and board shorts watching this play out in front of me and just thinking like, I don't think I'm quite supposed to be here in this moment. Have you ever been there? Have you been in the presence of someone or something that just demands honor, but it wasn't shown? And do you know what that is like? To step into a situation where there's just a a sense of reverence is commanded of you, and you just weren't ready for that. Or you watch someone else just not have the respect that the situation deserves, 
And that's just a weird tension that we can find ourselves in. And we actually need to step into that today to see where we land in Malachi chapter one. So in your copy of scripture, read with me. This is verse six. Malachi chapter one, verse six. It says, a son honors his father. This is God speaking through his servant. A son honors his father and a servant his master. But if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where's your fear of me? Says the Lord of armies to the priest or to you priests who despise my name. Like, wow, <laughs> we're getting into the, the whole prophetic voice thing. We're like, man, they are not holding back. Hey, I heard both barrels. Like, it's, it's coming at you hard now. And God is saying, hey, if I'm a father, where's my honor? Sons honor their fathers. Where's my honor? And if I'm a master, where's your fear of me? Where's your respect of me? Where's the reverence? This isn't just like a fear of God that we should have that's like, oh, he's just really scary. It actually does start there. That's necessary. I'm just like with your children, like in growing a child in the early days, in the early years of their life, they can't understand more abstract ideas like respect and authority and stuff. And so that has to be built on the simple idea of real legitimate fear. There's a point where they need to understand authority and respect comes from the foundation of fear. And so same thing with God, that there should be a sense of like, you're scary because I can't control you and you have all power. But that fear doesn't stay just like, I'm scared because of how you could hurt me, but it shifts and it grows and matures into a sense of fear that's, no, I respect you. I have a great, deep, grand reverence for you. I honor you. And so he's saying, I'm father, creator of all things. The one at the head of this covenant with Israel, his chosen people, he is over them. And so his father, where is my honor? And as master, are you calling me Lord? That I am the sovereign, I am the suzerain over the vassal Israel. That in this form of covenant that they're still under, this is a type of covenant where somebody is sovereign over them and they are to submit to the sovereign and respect and to obey. There should be this reverence that is given. And he says, where is your fear of me? Do you fear me? And he makes it so pointed. He says, you priests who despise my name. Whoa. You despise my name. The name of, as we would often pronounce it, Yahweh. This is Y-H-W-H. This is a tetragrammaton. This, this is where in your scriptures, in the modern English translations, anytime you see Lord and it's all uppercase, um, that is how we have kind of taken a transliteration and we're saying we're attaching Lord to it. But it's this idea of the name of God. Um, we don't know how it's actually pronounced because in Hebrew they don't have the vowels. And so we think something like Yahweh. And it's Y-H-W-H as the best we can transliterate it. And, and so this name that is to be revered, in fact, it's revered to the point where the Jews actually stopped saying the name of the Lord. And thus, we don't really know how it's supposed to be pronounced. But this name, he's saying, you despise my name. And this name was given to Moses in this burning bush when Moses has fled Egypt after he came to some prominence there, living in the palace, growing up. And so he flees because he's actually killed uh, an Egyptian. And so he goes and God meets him there. He's in this burning bush. And so you imagine like, if something's on fire, what should happen to that substance that's on fire? It is consumed. And yet Moses comes along and there's a bush and it's on fire and it's not being consumed. 
It's somehow self-sustaining. It's, it's here, like what is going on? And he approaches it and, and God starts to speak to him through that and tells him, hey, you're gonna go and set my people free. So go confront Pharaoh and all this stuff. And Moses is like, who do I say sent me? <laughs> who are you? And God gives him this name. And in giving him this name, what he has done is he said, like, you see who I am? And we, we interpret that often as I am that I am, the great I am. Meaning, or another way of translating it is, I be that I be, which sounds weird in English. This idea of self-existence, this aseity, that God is the first. There is no one before him. And so he is the cause of all things. He, he is the one that we can trace back and say, well, what caused this? And what caused this? And what caused this? But ultimately it comes back to like, well, what was in the beginning? And God says, that is me. self Sufficient in every way. He needs nothing. He is not contingent on any of creation. He's transcendent over it all. And yet beautifully, he shows up in a burning bush to say, this is my name. I am that I am, Yahweh. And yet I'm here because I love you and I'm entering into this. And so the name expresses this covenantal love of a God who is above all and yet he comes in and says, I love you. I'm attaching myself to you, but I don't need any of you. And yet I love you and I've come for you. And so as you hear this, the priest should hear, you despise my name and to think my name. And name is a reference to the person and everything that is attached to the very being and existence of God. And he says, you despise that. My power, my sovereignty, my aseity, my love for you. How wild is that? This is what they say in the, in the next part of verse six says, yet you ask, how have we despised your name? And we're Israel. We are named Israel because you named us Israel in naming Jacob. If you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that. It sets the context for the rest of this thing. But we, we are who we are because of you. And you get these beautiful moments in scripture like when Moses and the, the Israelites are grumbling and everything and God's threatening to leave them. And Moses is like, no, like you've got to come with us. If you're not with us, we're nothing. And God says, you despise my name. And then, again, following the typical paradigm of how these arguments are gonna play out each time throughout this letter, there's God saying, here's the charge, here's the accusation, so to speak. And then they rhetorically respond. Wow, no, 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 no. And so this is it. And they're saying, how have we despised your name? How have we despised your name? Now look at verse seven. God responds, by presenting defiled food on my altar, how have we defiled you, you ask? When you say, the Lord's table is contemptible. When you present a blind animal for sacrifice, is it not wrong? And when you present a lame or sick animal, is it not wrong? Bring it to your governor. Would he be pleased with you or show you favor? Ask the Lord of armies. And now plead for God's favor. Will he be gracious to us? Since this has come from your hands, will he show any of you favor? Ask the Lord of armies. Ouch. How have we despised your name? Well, you think my table is contemptible. Meaning when you come in worship to offer sacrifice, as you present that before me, that's an act of drudgery. And you defile it with things that the, the Mosaic law that prescribes how and what you're to bring as a sacrifice. You bring things that are not acceptable. You bring lame animals. You don't bring the best in fact, you're bringing the worst. You're like, oh, what can I get away with? Like, 
Here, I'll just, I'll, I'll give what's left, you know? I'll make it through the budget for the month, and then if we've got anything left, I'll give a little bit out of that. And God's saying, what is that? My table is contemptible? You don't like it? This is an act of drudgery? It's not in accord with the law? And so then we have to ask too, like, is your worship, whatever you are calling your acts of worship, is it a burden to you? Does it feel like drudgery to wake up on Sunday morning and come sing and raise your voice with the people of God? When we come and we present offerings, finances is what we usually think of. Like we have a time of giving. We say we're going to start our time of worship through the worship of giving. This act of giving as an act of worship. And we always have that verse up there when Paul told the church in Corinth, like, give from a cheerful heart. God loves a cheerful giver. And you're saying, but, but do you give? And you're like, oh, I could have done so much with that. That would have been a nice handful of lattes this week. Or, or like, vacation coming up, man. Where is your heart in presenting what you give to God? He says, this is what it looks like. Obligation, drudgery. And he throws in, hey, would you, you know, the Persian Empire that's in control, King Darius, and they've got that local governor here. Would you give that to the governor? What you just brought to me? How would that go for you? I think again, now in our terms, your employer? You give them this level of expectation of work, the caliber of work, the excellence that you pour into your job, well, you would expect nothing less, or she would expect nothing less. And then the God of the cosmos, wait, you can have this. I'll give you this much of my time. Give you this much of my talent, this much of my treasure. And he says, go offer that to the bank when you pay your mortgage. See, see what they do with your house. Like, oh, <laughs> this is not a good, feel-good sermon, Kevin. Like, this, is, this is rough, this is heavy. What is going on? And he's saying, like, bring it to your governor because it's gonna reveal who you truly honor, who you revere in your heart as an authority. What do you give? And it's not just what you give out of your wallet. It's what are you doing as worship and what does your heart reflect in these acts of worship? And he's saying, priests, what have you guys done? You despise my name. Look at what you're allowing to be brought in and sacrificed, given to me. Things that I have said are unacceptable, and yet you bring them on, and you're like, yep, come on, let's keep going. Let's crank it out. Here we go. Like, no. Look at verse 10. I wish one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would no longer kindle a useless fire on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord of armies, and I will accept no offering from your hands. That is crazy talk right there. <laughs> I to think, why were we created? The whole function of priests and all of creation is to do what? To worship God, to give glory to the most glorious of beings. And he's saying, all your acts of worship, I wish you'd just Stop. Like it is actually better from God's vantage point for you to stop worshiping from a wrongful place than to continue in these rituals and this nonsense that you put on like a show. I'd rather you just stop. Shut the doors to the temple. Don't even let them inside. This useless fire that you bring before me. 
I go, oh, goodness. And God is saying, I want honor. I want obedience from the heart. I don't want your ritual performance. I don't care how much you give me regularly. That means nothing if it's not coming from your heart. If you don't revere me, if you don't honor my name, if you don't know who I truly am and then respond to that rightfully, then I'd rather you not do any of this. It's an insult. The point of all the priests and all the creation It's to worship God, and yet he's saying it's better to end it than to insult God with it. And then verse 11, God says, my name will be great among the nations. From the rising of the sun to its setting, incense and pure offerings will be presented in my name in every place because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of armies. But you are profaning it when you say, the Lord's table is defiled and its product, its food, it's contemptible. You also say, look what a nuisance. And you scorn it, says the Lord of armies. You bring stolen, lame, or sick animals. You bring this as an offering. Am I to accept that from your hands, asked the Lord? The deceiver is cursed who has an acceptable male in his flock and makes a vow but sacrifices a defective animal to the Lord. For I'm a great king, says the Lord of armies, and my name will be feared among the nations. Therefore, this decree is for you priests, If you don't listen, and if you don't take it to heart to honor my name, says the Lord of armies, I will send a curse among you, and I will curse your blessings. In fact, I have already begun to curse them because you are not taking it to heart. Look, I'm going to rebuke your descendants, and I will spread animal waste over your faces, the waste from your festival sacrifices, and you will be taken away with it. Then you will know that I sent you this decree, so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord of armies. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave these to him. It called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in all of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and integrity and turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should desire instruction from his mouth, because he is the messenger of the Lord of armies. You, on the other hand, have turned from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have violated the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of armies. So I, in turn, have made you despised and humiliated before all the people because you are not keeping my ways but are showing partiality in your instruction. You've made worship a nuisance. You've made worship something to be scorned. What are you doing, priests? And so I'll send a curse. In fact, a curse is already upon you. The ironic blessing, the priestly blessing from Numbers chapter six. And may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and bring you peace. That the priests were to proclaim this, to declare this blessing over the people regularly. And God says that blessing has become a curse. That as you pronounce it, watch as this curse unfolds, as he reverses this. And the animal waste, the feces, the entrails, all the unacceptable parts of an animal that was brought to be sacrificed, they would be cut out, they would be taken out of the temple because they are not holy and only what is holy is to be there. They're actually to be taken not just from the temple but outside the camp, outside the city gates and they would be thrown into a heaping pile where they would be burned up. That is not the offering to the Lord. That is disgusting. 
That's unacceptable. And God is saying here, hey, priest, you know part of your job to be like some really awesome filet guys, like cutting all these things out? Like, not good, not good, this is good, let's burn this. All that disgusting stuff that you take out of the temple, I'm gonna smear it on your face. And then you too can be taken out of the temple, outside the camp, outside the gates of the city where you're as good as just being burned up forever. Like, wow, this is harsh. And God is saying, this is what is deserved when you do not revere my name, when you lead people astray, when you have no honor for me. Where is my honor as father? Where is your fear of me as master? Now, with all the heaviness of this that we should rightfully feel, we have to ask, glad he's talking to priests. (laughs) And we... Your elders, we are pastors, we are not priests, and yet we are priests, the same as you are actually a priest. And so I need to walk you through some Christian doctrine as we kind of see a survey really quick of this idea of, the, we call it the priesthood of all believers now. That every one of you who is a follower of Jesus, who's put your faith in God alone for salvation that is accomplished through the death and resurrection of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, you are now a priest with him. That this idea of all of our salvation comes from our union with Christ. That as Christ died on a cross, having lived a sinless life that we could not because we are broken sinners, we must confess we are sinners and we can never pay this debt that we owe to God. He's infinite and we are finite. And yet the infinite being God himself in flesh, Jesus, the son of God, he came and he lived a sinless life and then he died a sacrificial death on the cross, the perfect sacrifice the sacrifice to end all sacrifice. Once final for all, his atonement, his covering would be enough for all of us who would put our faith in him. And so we must believe that. And in doing that, what has happened is we have been united with Christ. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. Then now, as Jesus was on the cross, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, he who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So he took our place in this great exchange the reformers would call it. That on the cross, we received the righteousness of Jesus and he received the sin and shame and guilt, all the condemnation, the wrath of God justly due on us was taken out on him. So we are united with him. And in that beautiful union, that is why now we have God's presence in us. The spirit of God is in us because there was this sin that separated us from God that he is holy. And so something had to be a mediator. And there is one mediator between God and man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And so because Jesus died in our place and became united with us in this, having atoned for all of our sin, now we're united back with God. And so the spirit of God now dwells in us. We are now his temple. That God's presence is with us. That is so good. This is the good news that we've been brought back into fellowship with God to enjoy him forever, that he really is with us. And yet we live in these tensions and I am here with you with tears regularly saying, I know it, I believe it, but I'm not living it. But I want to. In being united with Christ, we are now priests because he is the high priest. And so in our union with him, we, has, we see his anointing as high priest. We are anointed in that union now as priests. So here's the thing. 
Exodus, we go all the way back to God leading the people out of slavery. And so Israel's coming out. This is what it says in Exodus 19, three to six. It says, Moses went up to the mountain to God and the Lord called out to him from the mountain. This is what you must say to the house of Jacob and explain to the Israelites. So say this to my people. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine. And you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. And then you jump forward in scripture as Jesus has accomplished this and listen to how Peter explained it in 1 Peter 2, 4 to 5 and then jumping down to 9, he says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by people but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then you jump down to 9, he picks it back up and he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then we see in the end, as John has his revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ and his ultimate return, visibly it will happen. Jesus is coming again. We referenced this last week. It's at the end of Malachi. The day of the Lord is coming. And this is what it says in Revelation 5, 9 to 10. It says, they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign on the earth. So now, believer, indwelt and empowered by the Spirit, we perform the priestly functions with direct access to God because of Christ's atoning sacrifice. Because of the finished work of Jesus, you have direct access to God himself. We do not pray to another. We do not need someone else to mediate our worship. We come straight to the throne of grace because it is a throne of grace. We come with confidence and boldly because Jesus has brought us here. We are united with him. And now the spirit of God in us, we continue in this priestly function as a royal priesthood that all believers are brought into this act of, hey, now, to the world, mediate my covenant. Tell them this good news. Bring them into worship of the one true God. And so as we hear these harsh words for the priest that God spoke through Malachi, there is another sense in which we should also say, well, we are priests too. We could run the same danger of not truly honoring and revering the name of the Lord. So do we honor and revere the name of the Lord? As priests, a theologian, J.V. Fresco, he says, um, all believers in Christ share in this priestly status. Therefore, there is no special class of people who mediate the knowledge, presence, and forgiveness of Christ to the rest of believers, and all believers have the right and authority to read, interpret, and apply the teachings of Scripture. That's all of us. And yes, God has graciously gifted the church with people who have the spiritual gift of teaching. And so we should love that. We should cherish that. There are pastors, there are elders, there are others who are not even pastors and elders who have the gift of teaching. And yet all of us, because we are indwelt by the spirit of God who Jesus said would lead and guide us into truth, we can read scripture and hear directly from God. So do you cherish that? Or is it an act of drudgery? And again, I wanna be honest with you and say there are many days when I have to make myself get into this. 
But as you get into this, and you see the beauty of a God this gracious, this loving, then it, it does something to our hearts. As we see the love of God, and then our hearts soften, and we respond in love. As John the Apostle said, we love him because he first loved us. You didn't conjure up your own love for God. And you're never going to white knuckle it and say, oh, I'm going to love him more this week. It's not in and of your own strength. It's in the beauty of the gospel that we can never do it on our own, but God so loves us that he came and he said, I'll do it for you. Now look at how much I love you. Do you know you belong here? Do you know that I know you? You were known and you're still loved? Isn't that amazing? And that vertical love from God becomes mirrored back to him as it gives us the capacity to love and then it overflows and goes out horizontally as well. We become this royal priesthood, mediating worship to all of creation, restored back to what we were designed to do in the beginning, made in his image, to proclaim this is who God is, made in his image. I want to proclaim this to the world. What a glorious God. So all these warnings Malachi gave the priest should be taken to heart. We have to consider them too as we engage in worship. Um, but you may be thinking like, well, I don't exactly cut up animals and throw them on fires. That's kind of strange. Or bake new bread every day or every few days and put it out on a table and light these candles, make sure they stay wicks trimmed and oil filled and all that stuff. Like, I'm not doing that. And I don't think you are either, Kevin. I'm not. And we don't, we don't worship in these, uh, these roles like those priests where there were specific religious rituals, so to speak, of ways of offering sacrifice. And yet the beauty of all of that, is every bit of that was to point us forward to a time when that would not be needed. Because all the sacrifices, all the offering, all that stuff, it was just to point us to one sacrifice that would truly be enough and that sacrifice has been made. It is Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And so we're not doing that anymore, and yet we're still called to worship, and so we have to ask, what do we do in worship? What is our worship if it looks so different than how they worshiped? This is what Jesus said to a woman at the well. We preached this a few years ago. He was talking to a woman who's a little confused, like, should we, should we worship here on this mountain or that mountain? You guys say this, we say this. Like, oh, it's kind of confusing. What do you think? And Jesus is like, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. This is how you worship, in spirit and in truth. And so the remedy that Malachi proposed for proper worship, to begin again, is actually found in 2.7. This is what he says, for the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should desire instruction from his mouth because he is a messenger of the Lord of armies. I mean, you want proper worship, it starts with knowing what is actually true. If you don't know what is actually true of God, you're not worshiping God. Like, if I convince you to be one of my really good friends, but I'm always wearing a mask, I'm always putting up a front, are you really my friend? Are you a front's friend? And God is saying, I want you to actually know me. When you worship me in truth and in spirit, then I actually receive that worship. But you have to actually know who I am. And so we need to know who God is. And then knowing who God is, which is what Paul is trying to do in the first 11 chapters of his letter to the church in Rome, it's called Romans. 
He unpacks the gospel. It's beautiful. It's so dense. And then after he's unpacked all of the gospel, he says this in Romans 12 too. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, which is what he's covered in the last 11 chapters, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. And so this comes on the heels of, of him unpacking. The gospel is that Jesus has paid your debt. He has brought us back into union with God himself. We are united with him. And now the spirit of God is in us, helping us to put sin to death and live for the glory of God. And so now we can know the truth. We can know the gospel. We can know the very words of God, what he has revealed about himself. And we get to enjoy his presence and out of that, in spirit and in truth, God himself empowering it, we offer back our lives. And so what is worship? What should you feel conviction in? Like, oh, all these things, like, is it, I'm not giving enough money, or I'm not volunteering enough, and all this. Maybe so, but no. The point is not to get you to give more or do more. The point is to get you to see that all of life is worship. That every single thing you do, the most routine, redundant, boring part of your job, every single breath, every word that's uttered, everything can be an act of worship to the glory of God. When you live in light of God's presence with us and the truth of what he has done, who he is, then everything is worship. Because it's just a response to the worth of God. That's why we call it worship. The root word there, it's worth you see the worth of God, the infinite treasure that he is, how nothing else compares, everything else leaves you dissatisfied. And yet we run to all these things like broken cisterns, and you're like, why is the water gone? Because it just leaks out. And I take that cup again, and I pour it down, and I just want more and more and more. And there stands Jesus saying, no, come to me, all who are thirsty. I'm gonna make a wellspring of life just flow out of you just flow out of you, which is a picture back to Eden, and we're getting into deep waters here, but and Ezekiel talks about this as well, and you see this in the Revelation, that there's, there's this river coming out of the temple, and it's all this beautiful picture of God is in us, and Jesus making this promise that water flows out of us, now you, royal priesthood, life just flows out of you, and starts to flood the planet, because you are now the temple. And so priests, would you honor the name of the Lord? Would you see how glorious he is? He is majestic. There is no one like him. And he is so gracious and loving and kind and compassionate that when he comes, he now comes in love to discipline us. And all of these rebukes, we should take them to heart and celebrate the grace and glory of God. A God who forgives and invites us now into loving him because he loves us. So bottom line, Worship from the heart in response to the truth of who God is. Whatever you're doing, whatever your act of worship is, and it should be everything, and do that from the heart with the truth of who God is and who you are in light of that. Let's worship from our hearts. Uh, there's a beautiful paradigm kind of tucked in the middle of this. I see kind of like a chiasm. Um, this, this paradigm for how in the midst of the confrontation of the priest, you see this is how it works. And, and I've shared this with our elders and some others. They're like, I'm just so deeply convicted. I spent some time with uh, a handful of pastors a couple of weeks ago in St. Pete. And, and one of the 
just, just being honest, like, it, it hit me because it brings out these insecurities. But as I'm sitting there over the course of a couple of days with these guys, um, they're sharing text messages that they're getting of like, one of them was just like, just lit up and he's like, man, one of our girls, she's been meeting, doing this one-on-one Bible reading with one of her neighbors who just did not know God at all. And this morning they met together. She gave her life to the Lord. We're gonna baptize her this Sunday and all stuff. And, and I'm hearing story after story and I'm just like, we've gotta be more missional. Like thousands and thousands of homes and thousands and thousands upon thousands of people are moving to our own city. We've got to reach them. They need to know that there's a God who loves them. Let's go. And I get like all fired up about that. And I think, okay, how do I do this? How do I lead our church? How do I lead beloved? It's being more missional. Like invite your friends and all these things. Like I want to give you strategies and all that stuff. And I'm not saying any of that is necessarily bad. But a kind friend of mine pointed out to me and I had to deeply wrestle with it, and I see it here, that like, if people just start sharing the gospel more than they currently are because you told them to, is that worship? Can God use it? Yes, as he often does use our failures. We've said this many times over the years. You talk naturally about what you love most. Everyone in here is a weirdo about something. You know that. There is something that makes you weird and you love it and you're not ashamed to talk about it. And other people hear that and they're like, well, they're a weirdo, but they love it and so it makes sense. And it's the same thing with God. That more than giving you strategies and, and our pastors, we've, I've been talking with one of them, like we're trying to get some things ready to help give you effective strategies and things like that. But none of that matters if you don't just love God so much that you want to share that love. See how much he loves you. And then out of that, love him. Because this is what he said back in verse 11 of chapter one. He said, my name will be great among the nations from the rising of the sun to its setting. Incense and pure offerings will be presented in my name in every place because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of armies. It is going to happen. His name will be great among all the nations. And we have the beautiful privilege of stepping in to seeing that come about. But it does not happen without at first being great in your own heart. Before we make the name of God great in our community and around the world, it first must be great in our own heart. We must honor and revere the Lord. So will you love him all the more? Just remember this all started at the beginning with the first thing God said to them. Israel. I've loved you. I have loved you. Will you see that he loves you and respond with love for him? If you don't yet know Jesus, this is a beautiful time to just acknowledge that he loves you. The God of the cosmos loves you so much he came here and he literally loved you to death. Will you love him? Will you believe that he died for you? to be that sacrifice, to end all sacrifices. So now, our bodies are living sacrifices, that all of life is an act of worship. When we see rightly who God is, how much he loves us, the truth of his name, it is glorious. So live for his glory. Believe he died, he rose again, so now you will forever be united with God. Everlasting life is the promise. Will you believe that? Will you confess him to be Lord? He is God alone. He's master. 
Have a fear of him who is master. Honor father. Make that your confession. Believe it in your heart. Confess it with your mouth. And the promise of scripture is you will be saved. And then come talk to me. Talk to one of the pastors because we would love to baptize you because that is the next step of obedience for you is to proclaim that. I like Jesus going into the waters and coming out, the waters of judgment, and also as Jesus died and was placed in a tomb and then rose again to life. It's an expression of our union with him. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for your extravagant love, your grace, your mercy. You are compassionate. You are glorious. There is no one that's like you, Jesus. You are the one who is above all. You have made all things. You're holding all things together. God, thank you. We don't get what we deserve. This is is just so crazy that you would love us like this. And you do. So we love you. We praise you. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much, God. Spirit, would you change our hearts? Would you bring salvation to lives today? Do you remind us all as your followers, Jesus, that we are priests and we get to mediate this on your path. Worship. Let us see the whole world bowing before you. God, would you use us in that and let it start in our own hearts that we would honor you, that we would revere you.